Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order from best to worst. I'm Ben Rowe. And I'm Sarah Rowe. Thank you for listening to us today. (laughs) Now, Ben, if that is your real name... Mm -hmm. Have you been possessed by Vincent Price? So that's my secret, Sarah. You've... I've always been possessed <laughs> by Vincent Price. How are you doing today, Sarah? Oh, I have had a time. You certainly have since yes. we recorded Faust. The have... same day we finished recording Faust, as a matter of fact, um, I had a bout of heat stroke, which is a step above heat exhaustion. And... Uh, is bad news, and I was in the hospital, but um, I am doing all right now, uh, and we are full on in the midst of packing Castle Scream scene, but I do want to say thank you everyone for your patience as the episodes have been coming out um, kind of not according to schedule, same with bonus audio on our Patreon. Um, I did do a little announcement on Patreon that hey, I'm I'm in the hospital, things are going to be late. And um, a lot of people commented and said, hey, don't worry, you silly, silly goose. Mm. You don't need to panic. Mm. So thank you, everyone, for your patience. And yes, I'm doing much better now. Yes, thank you so much, everybody, as we, you know, made sure to prioritize Sarah's health, uh, which also meant taking the time to, like, you know, give this episode the attention it deserves. Uh, yeah, Because we, we got a big one. Yeah, what are we watching this week? This week, Sarah, we're watching House on Haunted Hill from 1959, directed by William Castle. Not to be confused with Haunting of Hill House? Correct. Okay. Because I, I um, have absolutely been saying... You have absolutely <laughs> been doing that. Um, if, if it'll put more dollars in... William Castle's pocket, he's fine with you getting confused. <laughs> that was his plan all along, Indeed. I see. So you've been looking forward to this one for a while. Oh, boy. Do you want to tell me why? Because I love the gothic. Yeah, yeah, sure. But like that could apply to any number of movies. That is fair. Um, okay, so it was around like Halloween time before COVID, for oh, sure. Wow. Yeah. And we went to our local comic shop we must have been in like early 1950s, maybe late 1940s, and they had House on Haunted Hill playing on their television. And at one point, just like a whole skeleton fucking comes at a girl. And I inadvertently, not really thinking, yelled, holy shit, because uh, I was not expecting a whole ass skeleton to come at a girl. Um, and... Yeah, it was just like a very fun moment of recognizing like, like I knew, okay, so A, I've never seen this movie. B, I knew that it's like iconic for many, many reasons and Mm. signals a lot for horror in 1959. But also C, um, being so 
mired in old school classic horror Mm. and then you see something that like most people would see as very like kitschy or corny Mm. and you're just like holy shit like having the full intended impact right because yeah we were still back in time somewhat and so in comparison to those movies it was like oh wow this 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 is actually trying to do something yeah yeah yeah. so i was looking forward to it before but that experience definitely solidified my excitement for this movie have you seen this before yes okay well (laughs) you're so disappointed well I, i like when we see movies for the first time together for sure so producer director william castle had experienced great success with his 1958 gimmick horror movie, Macabre, shot for $90,000 and released in October of 1958 to a gross of $5,000,000. Lots of money. Lots of money. We covered Macabre in episode 229, and it is currently sitting on the list at number 24. Oh, wow. Yes, quite high up there. Uh, yeah, huge, huge successful movie. So obviously a follow-up was in order. So Castle once again teamed up with Rob White, who had written Macabre, and would also write House on Haunted Hill. The title of this movie, as we've already alluded to, uh, was intentionally chosen to evoke Shirley Jackson's popular novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which had come out earlier this same year. Mm. So that book was already like, out and doing numbers when they decided to title this movie the way they did so it was intentionally designed to confuse you uh or, or at least like evoke that same brand uh basically <laughs> brand. Um, yeah for sure yeah uh and and what's funny is like haunting of hill house would be adapted to a film the year after this in 1960 uh but it would just be called the haunting Um, I guess so that you wouldn't get that movie confused with this movie, which wanted you to get confused with that book. (laughs) So for the lead role, uh, Castle sought out Vincent Price, who had just starred in The Fly. Price had recently been passed over for a role, and he was sitting dejected at a diner near the Samuel Goldwyn studio lot. Castle saw him there and joined him for coffee and pie. Over coffee, Castle described the premise of the movie, and Price loved it and agreed to star in two pictures for Castle that year. With Vincent Price's involvement secured, it was easy for Castle to find a distributor for the movie um, in Allied Artists, uh, and the film began production with a budget of $200,000. Not bad. Yeah. That's like double macabre. Yeah. So. The wife of Price's character is played by actress Carol Omart, who writer Rob White had insisted on for the part. Born in 1927, she was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, to a Mormon family. Her family soon moved to Seattle, however, and Carol was singing on the radio by the age of 12. Her father and mother separated, and her mother took her back to Utah and sort of started being very like stage mom, like living mm. through her daughter and kind of foisting stuff on her daughter. Uh, in 1946, uh, she won the Miss Utah pageant and placed fourth in the Miss America pageant. Her success in pageants led to uh, modeling jobs, uh, including becoming the model for the femme fatale capitalist 
Copper Calhoun in Milton Caniff's popular Steve Canyon adventure strip. This led to roles in early television commercials of the 1950s, which led to regular guest roles on some of the more popular television shows of the day. Her first marriage to actor Ken Grayson lasted from 1949 to 1951, and her second marriage to actor Wade Preston went from 1956 to 1958. Hmm. Her television performances garnered her good critical notices for her acting ability, and she was dubbed a female Brando by the press. Oh. In 1955, Paramount Pictures signed her to a seven-year contract and spent $2 million promoting her as the next Marilyn Monroe. This is sort of like taking an actress who's said to be like a female Heath Ledger and saying you're going to make her the next Kat Dennings. Hmm. Interesting um, parallel there with Kat Dennings and Marilyn Monroe. I know what you're going for, but it's just, I wonder what Kat Dennings would say to that. Paramount cast her as the lead in The Scarlet Hour, where she plays a married woman having an affair with a man she convinces to commit a jewelry robbery, and then at the end of the movie, she kills herself. The role had been written for Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds pretty similar. Who uh, turned it down. Despite director Michael Curtiz's enthusiasm for Omart, the film was not well regarded as Omart was considered to be too inexperienced for what the film asked of her. Uh, Omart felt that Paramount had shot themselves in the foot by debuting their new ingenue as a drunken, suicidal, adulterous criminal. And like, again, you took someone everyone said is the female Brando. You spent $2 million saying that she's the next Marilyn Monroe, and then you cast her in a role written for Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, th- this is a little all over the place. Yeah, it's it's like, see this actress who's like acclaimed for her acting? Well, you should expect her in a bunch of like fun sex comedies. But first, like it just, yeah. Uh, so ultimately, Paramount agreed and released her from her contract. Uh, She made one other film before uh, the start of her two-year marriage to Wade Preston, during which she retired from acting. But once that marriage was over, uh, she returned to acting in the Warner Brothers picture Born Reckless, and House on Haunted Hill would be her fourth feature film. Writer Rob White had supported the casting of Carol Omart, but he was less enthused about the casting of Richard Long as the movie's hero. Richard Long was one of the many square-jawed, dark-haired future TV heroes who had appeared in Cult of the Cobra. Ah, okay. Born in 1927 in Chicago, he appeared in his first film in 1946, playing Orson Welles' son in Tomorrow is Forever. Long impressed Welles, who went on to cast him in The Stranger in 1947. Mm. When the studio he was contracted with, International Pictures, merged with Universal, Long continued at the studio. Winning fame playing son Tom Kettle in the Ma and Pa Kettle series of films. Long served in the U.S. Army from 1950 to 1952 in the Korean War, returning to acting following the war. In 1954, he married singer and actress Susan Ball. Fourteen months later, she was dead from cancer. Ah. Uh. That's Lucille Ball's cousin. Mm. By that point, his contract with Universal International was over, uh, so he had switched gears to focus on television. In 1957, he married pinup model Mara Corday, and despite a troubled marriage, they had three children. 
Rob White objected to Long because of a scar Long had, uh, which he'd gotten in the war, which had a tendency to pull his mouth up into a smile, which White was worried would undercut the mood of the picture if it looked like he was smiling through all the scares. That's fair. But upon seeing the completed movie, White realized that Long was a good actor and liked him in the part. Long's greatest career success would come on television in the 1960s as the character Rex Randolph Private Eye, who first appeared in his own show, Bourbon Street Beat, for one season, then as a recurring guest star on Hawaiian Eye for a year, and then as a regular on 77 Sunset Strip for two years. Some of those titles, man. (laughs) They were all a series. It was a set of, um, there was, I think, one other uh, that he didn't appear on, but it was a set of, like, interrelated detective shows with the same gimmick where like the gimmick was like we're gonna set it in some like specific kind of unique locale that isn't just like generic big city or new york so like the original csi ah yeah i guess um so like his show was set in new orleans um hawaiian i obviously is in hawaii and 77 sunset strip was set in la okay um and so these were all related because they had the same producer. So that's how he was able to kind of bounce around playing the same character from one to the other. His other major TV shows later on were The Big Valley and The Nanny and the Professor. (laughs) One of these is not like the other. And Long died of heart failure in 1974, age 47. Oh. The role of Dr. Trent is played by actor Alan Marshall who had been born in Sydney, Australia in 1909 and started acting on Broadway in the U.S. at age 15 after his successful actor parents moved to New York. He began appearing in films in 1936, playing a number of supporting roles through to 1944. So he was in like Adventures of Robin Hood as like one of the Merry Men and he's Captain Phoebus in the 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame. But he was like always kind of a supporting actor And he stopped acting in 1944 because he suffered a nervous breakdown and just sort of retreated from working. In 1948, his wife of 10 years divorced him and a number of projects that he was cast in over the next few years, he withdrew from shooting uh, due to illness, like mental health illness. Yeah. Through the 1950s, he slowly returned to acting through television slowly building up his credits before appearing in his first feature film in 15 years, House on Haunted Hill. His final film, Day of the Outlaw, was later this same year um, because he passed away of a heart attack while on stage performing with Mae West in her play Sextet in 1961. Wow. A lot of of people dying of heart-related things. Yeah, I mean, people didn't live well back then. Actress Carolyn Craig was less than a month into her pregnancy with her first son when she appeared as Nora Manning in the movie. Born in 1934, she had made her film debut in the 1956 James Dean vehicle Giant, and she appeared often on film and television until 1961 when she divorced her first husband, Charles Graham, and married her second husband, Arthur Bryden. She retired from acting to be with Bryden until he divorced her in 1970, at which time she shot herself and died at age 34. Oh. Yeah, just a cavalcade of tragedies. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. Playing Watson Pritchard, the owner of the house on Haunted Hill, is Elisha Cook Jr., 
who is well known for his many roles in films noir. Cook was born in 1903 and had been acting since he was 14. He was an extremely prolific character actor, um, but personally he was a recluse who lived in the high Sierras between movies and only came down to Hollywood to shoot. Role offers had to be delivered up to his cabin by courier. <laughs> Some of my favorite roles of his over his long career include Wilmer Cook in The Maltese Falcon, 1941. Mm-hmm. Harry Jones in The Big Sleep, 1946. Clip Springer in The Great Gatsby, 1949. George Beatty in The Killing, 1956. Oh, yeah, yeah. Samuel T. Cogsley, Captain Kirk's lawyer, in the episode Court Martial <laughs> of the original Star Trek in 1967. And Mr. Nicholas in Rosemary's Baby in 1968. We've previously seen him for like a movie on the podcast when he appeared in Voodoo Island in 1957. Ah, uh, yes. Also appearing in the film is Julie Mitchum, the older sister of Robert Mitchum. Oh, that's cool. Uh, she appeared in a handful of films from 1947 to 1959, and House on Haunted Hill would be, in fact, her last role at age 45. Uh, she was a practitioner of the Baha'i faith and had like a Baha'i ring that she wore just all the time in general. And um, the director and cinematographer noticed it, and they decided that like they could use it to make her character seem mysterious in like a red herring kind of way. So there's like a close-up of her like fiddling with her ring, which has like this Arabic writing on it. Um, <laughs> that's just meant to be like, Ooh, what's that about? And it's like never explained in the movie. Cause it's just like a Baha'i ring, but it's just meant to make her look shifty. Oh, Oh dear. She would pass away in 2003 at age 88. House on Haunted Hill would also be the final film appearance of actress Leona Anderson. Born in 1885 in St. Louis, Missouri, she began appearing in silent comedies in 1914, lasting until 1922 when she sort of withdrew from the spotlight. Okay. She then returned to the spotlight <laughs> in 1953 at age 68 as a comedy musician billing herself as the worst singer in the world. <laughs> Her act became very popular on, like, comedy radio shows and the like, leading to the release in 1957 of her album, Music to Suffer By. <laughs> rats in my room, I am bothered by those rats in my room. I would she appeared in the film Johnny Gunman in 1957, followed by House on Haunted Hill, uh, and passed away in 1973 at age 88. Exterior shots of the titular house were taken at the famous Ennis House, which had been designed by Frank Lloyd Wright and built in 1924. Um, are you familiar with the Ennis House? I don't think so. So it's um, a Frank Lloyd Wright house in like the L.A. area. It's pretty famous. It gets used in movies and TV a bunch. Um, it's like the mansion that Spike and Drusilla live in in season <laughs> two of Buffy. Okay. Um the deal with it is that like it looks like um the architecture is inspired by mayan pyramids and stuff like okay. that so this is like very like concrete mesoamerican blocky kind of look which makes it like really distinctive from the outside because it's a frank lloyd wright house um it's like structurally unsound the corners of rooms are glass pane windows that like meet at a corner and i guess like wind gets in through the corners because like the seals aren't good and 
Because it was all for the aesthetic. Yes, exactly. All, like all of Frank Lloyd Wright's stuff, it's about how it looks and with very little thought to like the livability. The guy who lived in it at the time they shot this film, like the house is huge. It's a mansion. He just had like all of his stuff in like one room. Like he had like a carpet and a like side table and a couch and a bed. Just like because he was like, you, I, there's, what am I going to fill this weird house with? Like there's only <laughs> one livable room in this house. Now, despite using that for the exterior, the interior of the house is depicted on sound stages, on sets. That makes sense. In like an 1890s Victorian style that looks nothing like the weird <laughs> Mayan-inspired interior of the real house. Well, that just adds to the spooky. These things don't come together. Love it. Shooting went smoothly with no problems until the film's first test screening, which went disastrously. Castle discovered that the test audience had consisted of middle-aged people, and he insisted that there be another test screening uh, with an audience consisting only of teens and college-aged audience members, uh, and in that case, the response was much more enthusiastic. And from that <laughs> moment on, Castle vowed to basically only make movies for teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. He had a hunch of who's coming to see these movies. Yeah, and he was right. Yeah. Of course... Castle still needed a marketing gimmick for the movie. That's um, true, because that Macabre was um, the death certificates. It, yeah, it was life insurance policies. Yeah. It was, it was, you could get a life insurance policy uh, that, like, if you died of fright during the movie, Lloyd's of London would pay out, like, $10,000 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and they were real. Yes, they were real life insurance policies. It's just, you know, he was very confident that... No one was going to die. Right. Now, he couldn't repeat that same gag, so he needed to come up with something new. So what he came up with was advertising that the movie was being presented in Emergo. Possibly Emergo, but... Is the idea that, like, you're immersed? Something is going to emerge, I think, is oh. the, um, the meaning here. So almost like 3D? Mm. So during the climax of the movie, um, a skeleton crawls out of a vat of acid and attacks someone. And at that point in the movie, um, a skeleton with red lights for eyes, uh, which is hung up in the rafters, would light up, swing down, and fly <laughs> over the audience. Initial audience responses to this were, like, very strong. Vincent Price went to, you know, the premiere of the movie, and apparently, like, the first five rows in the um, theater just, like, freaked the fuck out. Like, just screamed <laughs> so loud. Uh, and Vincent Price was very, very happy about this. Listen, we can absolutely recreate this, because Home Depot is selling their 12-foot skeleton again. <laughs> now, usually, once the movie had been playing a while in the same location, and word had kind of gotten around about this skeleton, uh, kids would start coming to the movie and then try to hit the skeleton with, like, slingshots and BB guns and the like <laughs> when it swooped down at the end. The film's theme music originally had lyrics in an attempt to create a hit single Beware of the Blob style. Yeah. Uh, but Castle decided against them, and so only an orchestral version of the theme music was used. The main poster for the movie by artist Reynold Brown had several grisly images, such as a woman being hanged by a skeleton, Vincent Price holding a woman's decapitated head by her hair in a clear reference to the controversial cover of Crime Suspense Stories number 22 from EC Comics in 1954, and someone being drowned in a pit. Some newspapers refused to carry ads for the movie because of this art. 
So theaters started promoting the movie as being so scary, even the ads can't be shown. (laughs) Allied Pictures released the film on February 17th, 1959. Oh, like a Valentine's Day release. (laughs) And it would gross $2.5 million at the box office. And he spent $200,000, you said? That's right. Yeah, so a little over 10 times. This is some Roger Corman success. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, The huge success of this movie with its low budget and high returns was noted by some people in Hollywood, including one Alfred Hitchcock, Mm. who began preparing his own low budget horror movie in imitation, 1960s Psycho. In imitation? Yeah, of William Castle's success. Okay, so full disclosure, I haven't ever seen Psycho. I haven't ever seen House on Haunted Hill. But from what I understand, they're not the same. It's the idea of doing like a cheap ass low budget uh, horror movie that will get like a lot of money. Okay, and also okay. like the other thing that Hitchcock sort of took from Castle was the like idea of like promotion. Mm. Like that like half of Castle's success was like the success of his marketing. Right. Okay. And like promotional gimmicks and things. That's, so like Psycho had a promotional gimmick. Yeah. That's really interesting that Hitchcock is coming to this conclusion because he's been in show business for a while by now. Yeah. Um, Castle himself was a huge Hitchcock fan. Yeah. And so um, after Psycho came out, he would imitate Psycho with his 1961 film Homicidal. Love the Ouroboros going yes. on. Another legacy of the film's success uh, came from sort of the, the opening of the movie uh, where there are some very scary sound effects played totally in the dark. Um, which would have been really scary in a theater back then, like just completely being in the black with uh, all these scary noises. And this led to the emergence of novelty haunting records, uh, which consisted of terrifying sound effects like screaming and creaking doors and thunderstorms and the like that would be sold to play at Halloween parties or at haunted house attractions. Despite the film's great success, allied artists had made a critical error they'd failed to copyright the film properly. And so it lapsed into the public domain. Uh, There's like no copyright notice on the print. How does this happen? This happens with a really big movie with like... A Night of the Living Dead. I'm thinking Cary Grant's movie. And Audrey Hepburn? Roman Holiday? No, that's Gregory Peck. Um, Sabrina? No, it's, it's it's like a horror adjacent movie. Called like Spiral or something? Mirage? But that it's like another thing where like they just didn't put the copyright on it. And it's like, you guys, what are you doing? Who fell asleep at the wheel here? So that means that today there are a large number of home video releases, ranging from terrible bargain bin jobs from firms like Mill Creek, featuring transfers taken from VHS tapes, to colorized versions created so that the distributor can copyright their version, um, to fully restored presentations. For those looking for the film on Blu-ray, the superior release that we will be recommending is found on Scream Factory's sadly out-of-print Vincent Price Collection Volume 2. I believe it is that version that is streaming on Shudder for Shudder subscribers. Um, We will also have an HD restored version up on our YouTube playlist. Okay, cool. Well, folks, uh, I am super stoked 
and I hope you are too. If you would like to watch along, you can find our YouTube playlist at ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss House on Haunted Hill from 1959, directed by William Castle. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching House on Haunted Hill from 1959, directed by William Castle. Ben, uh, you said that you'd seen this before. What do you think of it now? This was still a lot of fun, but it was really interesting having seen all the movies we've seen for the show up Mm -hmm. till now to be able to like identify some interesting things about this movie. Yeah, what they're doing. Yeah. What was the context around you watching this for the first time? Um, it might have just been like something we rented from like the video store or like a cheap, like a real, like a cheap VHS or something. Okay. Yeah. Do you think you enjoyed it more now or less? Um, I'm not really sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, I still enjoyed it. Yeah. Is really the, the key thing here. Yeah, um, I also enjoyed myself. Vincent Price is great. He's just always great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's really good in this. Yeah. Well, how about I give the rundown of what happens? It's a a classic, you're stuck in this house until morning, otherwise you don't get money. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So let me run down the character list, um, because the movie does so, and I think it's very helpful to do so as well. <laughs> so we start with Watson Pritchard. Um, he is the person who owns the house on Haunted Hill. Uh, he conveniently says that, um, you know, many people have been murdered in this house, uh, like his own brother murdered by his sister-in-law. Um, and now he owns the house and believes that, you know, it's fully haunted, And he's the only one who's spent a night here before. Yeah. Um, When they found him, he was nearly dead, I think. Yes, is what he says, yeah. Uh, Next we meet Frederick Loren, uh, Vincent Price's character. Um, I had a full-on Hail Caesar moment because I was like, what's his last name? Loren? Lawrence? (laughs) What? Um, But it's Loren. He is married to Annabelle. Uh, Annabelle is his fourth wife. And he is throwing this party for her. We also meet Nora Manning, who um, is, uh, you know, a young girl, like maybe like early 20s, mid 20s, uh, who happens to work at one of Frederick Lauren's many companies. Yeah, he's super, super, super rich. Yeah, he's uh, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, millionaire. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's almost like it is a good comparison for for attitude but like but for wealth wise it's like important to re- people to recognize that like millionaires in the 50s like were the wealthy absolutely and people like are making jokes about how wealthy this guy is that like money means nothing to him but like on a relative scale the difference between the wealthiest one percent in 1959 and the average person is nothing like the difference between the 
wealthiest 1% and the average person now. Like, like, uh, Frederick, we, you and I here mm-hmm. in 2022 are closer to the amount of wealth of Frederick Loren than we will ever have the hopes of being to Bezos or Musk. Right. Basically what I'm trying to say is it's not like the wealth of every class has, um, increased in proportion. Yes. Like basically we have the same amount of money as like someone, you know, in our state, in 1959 it's just the rich have even more money but yeah i would i would peg nora's age as being like early 20s because if she's like a typist and she's unmarried and it's 1959 she's like between 20 and 22 years old yeah uh thanks for bringing us back to the plot summary after the brief economics Uh, lesson right eat the rich eat the rich um then we have lance schroeder who is our male lead he is a pilot or ex-pilot i guess yeah a jet pilot we meet ruth bridgers she works for the local newspaper uh she's here she says she wants to do a story about the house itself and the hauntings and then dr david trent is here he is a psychologist and he studies hysteria and so he's curious to see you know how do people react to being in a haunted house and i think he is meant to be studying hysteria as understood in 1959 as like you know, people, Mass hysteria. Right, people, and like people having nervous breakdowns. Yeah. Not the Victorian sense of hysteria as in your uterus moves around your body and that causes you mood swings. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, I did run down this guest list, um, but everyone that Frederick Lauren has invited, um, Pritchard, Nora, Lance, Ruth, and Dr. Trent, have all been offered $10,000 each to stay the night here. And so they all have that reason to be here as well. And they all need money. It's set up that like each one has a specific reason they need money. The reason I, I went on my way to point out that Lance is a jet pilot and not just a pilot is because in 1959, like a jet pilot means you're like an astronaut. It means like you're a superstar. You're a hero. Yeah. Um, just kind of automatically because jet pilots were cool. And I just wanted to make that context clear. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So those are our characters. Uh, and now we go to the plot. So Frederick Loren is an eccentric millionaire and he is hosting a party for his wife at this notoriously haunted house that is owned by Pritchard. While it may seem sweet at first that Loren is throwing this party for his wife, they are clearly not happy together. Um Annabelle is his fourth wife. Uh, She actually believes that he had his three previous wives murdered in some sort of way. And their back and forth is like uh, that kind of like sweet talk with barbs in them. Yeah. Like, oh, don't you wish this was arsenic in my tea, dear? Like something like that. Yeah. Annabelle does not make a secret of the fact that she married him for his money and hopes to outlive him. And he doesn't make a secret of the fact that he doesn't really care for that attitude. I do want to say he points out over and over again that it was her idea to have this party. And in the early parts of the movie, to me, that felt like him just like being an asshole. Like it is his party and his plan, but like he keeps saying it's her idea to force her to have to participate. But by the end of the movie, I kind of get the feeling that like she was the one who suggested it. Everyone is brought in. Uh, No one knows each other. Um, And this is also the first time that they are meeting uh, the Lorenz. 
Frederick explains that, yeah, at midnight, the doors will be locked. But up until then, you know, you can choose to leave and it's fine. You just won't get paid. So Pritchard starts to give a tour. He's like, here's the bloody spot where someone was murdered. And here's the other bloody spot where someone was murdered. And my my brother was murdered by my sister-in-law and their heads were never found. Like all, all that kind of sort of thing. Here's the acid pit in the basement. <laughs> They make their way down to the cellar um, where we see that acid pit, um, the vat of acid, uh, and to prove that, you know, that acid is still active, um, he throws in a, a rat that's been caught by a, uh, like a mouse trap, and it, it dissolves. And case in point, it dissolves like everything except the bones. Now, as they as a group are leaving the cellar, Lance corners Nora and is like, okay, but why are you really here? Like what, why do you need the money? Like what's going on? I'm the romantic lead. So are you like, <laughs> let's have some private time. And Nora's like, yeah, this is my whole deal. Typist. I, I'm the only breadwinner in the family, blah, blah, blah. And then spooky shit starts happening. Um, the lights kind of flicker and stuff. So they start exploring the cellar a little bit. Lance goes into a room and the door closes behind him, mysteriously. Nora can't open it, and then she sees a ghost. This creepy old woman. Whoa! And she can't get the door open, so she screams and runs upstairs. She grabs everyone, brings them down. Suddenly the door is not locked, and inside, Lance has been knocked out. And there's nothing inside the room. Yeah, like totally just bare walls. Everyone else heads upstairs and Nora and Lance kind of like investigate a little bit more. And it seems like there seems to be a, a hidden wall or a hidden passageway. And as they're looking, that creepy woman appears again and woof out of the room. And Nora's freaking out. And Lance is like, I didn't see anything. And Nora's like, so you don't believe me? What the fuck? And like storms out. They head upstairs, and this is when Nora and Lance separately happen to meet Annabelle. Uh, Annabelle has been like, no, I'm not doing this party. Like, this is weird and dumb and blah. And then she meets these guests upstairs, kind of pointedly. She seems a little um, accusatory to Nora about why you out of everyone. Why you? When she talks to Lance, Annabelle is a little flirty, but then also very victim-y, like, oh, no, I think my husband killed his three previous wives, and, like, I think I might be next. Can I come to you for help? Nora, left in her room, she goes to start unpacking a little bit, and she finds one of the missing heads in her suitcase! So she screams and runs downstairs, and, yeah, she, she's clearly just getting spooked all over the place. Frederick Lauren brings everyone downstairs and it's time to explain the rules because it's getting close to midnight. Now you might start to go like, Nora's really getting scared. And like, yeah, Nora doesn't want to stay the full night. But at this point, I started going like, why only Nora? Yeah, she's the only one who's been seeing anything. And she, she has a really good scream and no one is reacting to the fact that there are screams through the house. Yeah, no kidding. Just just a little weird. 
As Lauren is explaining the rules again, uh, he introduces the caretakers of the house, and the wife of the caretaker turns out to be that spooky woman uh, who is blind and so doesn't know she's scaring people. <laughs> Walking around in the dark. <laughs> So Lauren, again, sets up the rules, you know, you each get 10k if you stay till the morning, but you guys will be able to leave up until midnight. And that's when the caretakers leave, lock the door, and Lauren's like, well, I, I thought you had a choice, but we're just locked in now. Oops. Oh, well. Now as party favors, uh, Lauren gives everyone guns. And he, again, points out like, you know, this was my, my wife's idea for some party favors. So you get a gun. You get a gun. It's <laughs> Oprah over here. Nora is really upset that she didn't get to leave. Uh, she's really upset about like no one believing her and all of this. So she goes to hide in her room. Now, Lance, meanwhile, is kind of like searching through the house a little bit. is like a little creeped out and he hears a scream. And as he runs up the stairs, he sees... Uh, along with Dr. Trent from the top of the stairs, they find Annabelle hanged. And kind of the most shocking part for me in the movie is you literally see someone hanged. Yes. Um, you see her feet hanging there. Now, um, Trent can see that it's Annabelle. Lance thinks it's Nora. And we learn that it's Annabelle after, you know, Lance learns that it's Annabelle. When Lorraine comes in, he sees Annabelle. He's like, suicide, I guess. I, oh my God. I don't know, man. I don't know what happened. So Lance is like very puzzled by that. And he manages to find Nora. He checks in her room um, and she, actually, I think she comes screaming out. It's a little fuzzy, but whatever. She, this is one of those movies where like characters run around from place to place all throughout and you're supposed to kind of get confused about who's where, when. Exactly. Yeah. So Nora and Lance run into each other and Nora's like, I think someone just tried to attack me and keep me in a room and they thought I was dead and I think it was Lauren. And Lance is like, well, that would make sense because his wife is dead and I think he killed her because she was asking for my protection. So Nora gets told to stay in her room for protection while Lance goes out and Trent even goes to Lance and he's like, I think Lauren killed his wife. I think we should get everyone downstairs to like talk about this. Um, downstairs where everyone except for Nora and uh, Annabelle, <laughs> um, they all decide that like, I think Annabelle was murdered and everyone agrees on this. Yeah, because it's basically impossible for her to have hanged herself given the like geometry of the house basically and where because she wasn't she didn't drop off from like the stairs they find her hanging at the top of the stairs it's like not possible for her to have done it alone alone <laughs> and so trent proposes that well why don't we all go to our rooms and we stay there for the whole night uh if the person is innocent of the murder they have no reason to leave if the person who is guilty leaves they are giving themselves away now, despite that setup of like, hey, if you leave your room, that shows that you're guilty, Lance leaves his room and he goes to Nora and he's like, don't worry, I'm going to try to find a way out. Um, and when I do, I'll come get you and we'll leave. While he's out exploring, he finds a secret room that he gets stuck in. <laughs> For the rest of the movie. <laughs> Meanwhile, Nora is in her room and uh, at this point, there's a thunderstorm and she sees the ghost of Annabelle hovering outside of her window while 
a possessed rope makes its way inside and wraps around Nora's legs. And this is terrifying to Nora. So she screams and runs out and she runs downstairs. When she's running down the stairs, she sees Annabelle, her ghost, fully hanging from the ceiling. Um, And so this is more than just the feet. This is the full, like you see her eyes, like it's a lot. She continues running down the stairs, screaming the whole way, makes it to the drawing room where the lights are kind of going in and out and like they're all candles. So they start kind of going out. Ooh, spooky. And then she looks at the organ and oh no, it's playing by itself. Ah! And she screams more and runs out. Now, back upstairs, Dr. Trent is kind of like walking around. Um, Lauren tries to leave his room, sees Trent walking around and goes back inside his room. And then Trent goes to Lauren and like, is like, hey, Lauren, I heard sounds. Did you hear sounds? And Lauren's like, I think I heard the organ playing and maybe a door slam. And I'm like, you didn't hear the (laughs) screams? No one heard Nora. These are the most like weirdly soundproofed walls but they heard the organ. No, what no, no, the that's fuck? what I mean. The, 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 the walls are somehow soundproofed only to like high end frequencies. <laughs> so Trent is like, okay, I'll search up here for what's going on. And you go down and maybe go down to the basement, the cellar, just to see what's going on. Well, why shouldn't we search together, Trent? Uh, well, shouldn't we have to hurry to like find whoever is like what's going on? Someone's life might be in danger. Go quick, go to the cellar. Mm-hmm. After Lauren, like, heads down the stairs, Trent goes to Annabelle's death room <laughs> and uh, wakes her up. And she's like, oh, good. Like, our plan's working perfectly. Um, quick, get me out of this, like, suit that helps me hang. A hanging harness. A hanging harness. Thank you. I couldn't remember the word for it. Yeah. Um, A so, real thing that, like, yeah. exists for actors and stuff. Yeah, and Houdini. So we learn... Um, Annabelle is having an affair with Dr. Trent, who is a psychologist and who is like studying hysteria. But their plan was basically to convince Nora that she is being targeted by ghosts. So she would kill anything with the gun that comes near. And now she's in the cellar. Lauren is going down into the cellar. Perfect plan. Perfect crime. Mwahaha. Get all the money. Cut to the cellar where Nora sees someone coming down the stairs. She freaks out. She shoots. Turns out it's Lauren. And he's like, oh, Nora, no, blah, and dies. Uh, She screams and runs up the stairs. Trent comes out of the darkness, having planned the perfect crime, opens up the vat of acid and begins to drag Lauren over to the vat. Suddenly the lights go out and we hear a scuffle. Then we see Annabelle make her way down the stairs going, David, who is Dr. Trent, like, David, are you there? Hello? And uh, she gets down to the cellar and the lights are on. The vat is open, but there's no one to be found. And she's like, what is going on? She's wearing like the classic, you know, white nightgown universal look, except that it's like slit up the legs to like, the waist basically and she's like got nothing on those legs ben was like look at those gams yeah exactly <laughs> totally distracted by the gams mm-hmm. um meanwhile annabelle is distracted by the vat of acid she looks into the acid and suddenly a skull begins to rise attached to 
the full body, you know, this the skeletal structure. Um, the skull is connected to the spine bone. The spine <laughs> bone is connected to the shoulder bone. Uh, it's it's a skeleton. <laughs> so it rises, and you hear Vincent, or sorry, I guess Lorenz's voice echoing like, "You you wanted to kill me to take my money, but you won't live long enough to spend it." And is like coming at her, and she's screaming, and it manages to kind of corner her to get her towards the vat, and then it pushes her in. <laughs> And then <laughs> Vincent, sorry, because he's he is just Vincent Price at this moment for me. But Lauren comes out of the shadows with this full puppeteer system hooked up to him. That so he was controlling the skeleton <laughs> like it's a true like, puppet master. It's like it's like it's, this. it's amazing. I love it. Um, and he is like, mono- these, like wires and pulleys <laughs> and shit that he's like controlling like 1959 animatronics like and oh he is monologuing to himself like yes like this was like a plan that you and david trent had to kill me but what you didn't know is i knew and was playing the game too so he pushed dr trent into the vat and now annabelle's in the vat and he is He's the winner. He's the winner. Upstairs, Nora, along with everyone else who is left alive, so Pritchard and Ruth, um, managed to get Lance out of the secret room. And she's like, I think I killed Lauren. I shot him. Oh, God. And so they rush down to the cellar and they find Lauren just standing there. Uh, he, he has the police system off. And he's like, um, yeah, Dr. Trent tried to kill me. Um, but he fell into the acid and Annabelle also fell in. Just like slipped, you know? Yeah. How do you do? Um, but I'm ready for justice to decide whether I'm guilty <laughs> or innocent. And Pritchard like goes over to the vat and he's like, Pritchard, who, who's like quite drunk throughout this whole movie. Yes. And, and like a hundred percent genuinely believes in all the ghosts. Yeah. He looks at the vat and he's like, I can hear the ghosts coming and I'm next. And so are you. And that's the end of the movie. Yes. I know that that was a bit of a longer plot synopsis, but I wanted to try to convey the feel of like the twists and turns of like who's trusting who and kind of the the flow of of the pacing. Uh, The other thing, too, is that like so House on Haunted Hill, in my opinion, is a super fun amusement park ride of a movie absolutely it is the movie version of the haunted house attraction at an amusement park and so part of that means that like a lot of the joy of the movie isn't so much in the plot um which is well handled but you know i'll get to that later but like it's in the specific moments and scares which like if you were doing a plot synopsis where you're just trying to get across the story you'd kind of you don't need to go into all the individual things but those individual things are what makes the movie fun because the movie is meant as as a an attraction basically absolutely um, it's kind of interesting to think about this compared to like Vincent Price's uh, also amusement park ride style movie of uh, House of Wax. Sure. Yeah. Basically, this movie is perfect for taking your date to and getting their heart pumping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very fun and very good. 
everyone seems to kind of be like doing a good job. No one is kind of half-assing anything. I really appreciated some of the performances in this movie because they managed to successfully pull off the thing that so many movies in this like little subgenre try to pull off, which is making you not sure who to trust. Yeah. Like I thought for sure Annabelle wasn't really dead. But I thought it was going to be that like her and her husband were in on it together Mm. the whole time for some reason. Um, Misery loves company kind of reasons. Yeah, I don't know. But like, yeah, just that they're like sadists or something, right? Sure. Um, So, you know, because Vincent Price plays his role in such a way that like you think that Lauren's the bad guy, which like is what Nora's supposed to think. But it works because like the movie doesn't really address like whether Lauren did or did not kill his previous wives. He does definitely kill this one. Like he's a dude who's capable of murder. It's just, he's not specifically planning this murder. And so his overall like ambiance as a character, (laughs) like fits with the clues. It's not like the weird thing where someone talks one way for like no reason other than to make you suspect them. Yeah. And I, I thought also that like, Yes, it's an amusement park ride, like you said, but the level of tension Mm. that Price and Omar bring to their relationship does give you some frightening chills. And I think that is like a really unique thing about Price's performance in managing to be the like tongue in cheek macabre and then suddenly go a little too far, like twist the knife a little bit too much into being sinister and a little frightening yeah like he is both fun like he and you know he fucking is wearing a like puppeteer rig for a full human skeleton um but yeah he's also like believably threatening yeah which is a, a fine line to walk um omar does a great job sort of with her like acid wit um is that a pun? Because she... <laughs> it wasn't, but it is now. I think uh, she and Price are clearly having fun together as mm. well. Like, it's clear that they've done a lot of work to be believably... Uh, I'll continue writing your coattails. Uh, believably acidic to each other. Mm-hmm. You believe that they're two people with a history yes. is a key thing. Yeah, like this movie, there's no deeper sociological meaning here this is not like meant to reflect our deepest you know darkest fears back at us or something this is really just meant to be fun and ultimately the story is a variant on you know the cat and canary formula um but i think it's a good variant i think Mm -hmm. that like you know it's like okay they're trying to drive nora crazy but it's not to like scam Nora out of her inheritance Nora just happens to be the person they've chosen to do the thing it's it's definitely the like connecting the dots from Ken the Canary to Clue as well yes with um a stop off at the Diabolique yes in the middle because so we know that William Castle is a fan of La Diabolique it's what led him to make Macabre and the weirdest thing about this movie is that it's a La Diabolique remake, yeah. kind of. Sort um, of. Like Not, you have uh, you have this 
woman who is established as being like maybe has the right psychology to be like frightened into doing something and there's this plot to make her frightened into doing that thing but really for me the moment that you know most clearly references la diabolique but also makes clear what kind of movie this is is the skeleton rising out of the acid yes because this is a very very fun horror movie but it is i think not actually meant to disturb anybody mm-hmm. i think the scares and the jumps like there's a lot of jump scares in this movie and i think they're all meant to be kind of fun and i think that the way that they're shot is like cool and and spooky but like for whatever reason it's not quite the way you'd shoot things if you wanted them to actually be really disturbing and i think the thing that shows you that they know that they're trying to have fun here is that like la diabolique has the drowned husband with his eyes rolled up like slowly emerging from the tub and this has a puppeted skeleton (laughs) slowly rising out of a pool of acid like it's a different tone yes but they're walking that line really nicely yeah because of what we see with annabelle hanged Mm -hmm. and like that's brutal i am like when we got to the shot of her feet hanging Mm. um i was like that's a lot um i'm surprised they managed to do that and then we get the full-on shot i'm like how did they how did the censors be okay with this how did the censors be okay with vincent price walking away at the end so the censors are okay with annabelle's suicide because it's not real sure she doesn't actually kill herself Uh, The censors are okay with her and Trent getting dumped into a vat of acid because they're criminals and criminals have to die. Uh, And Vincent Price, I'm pretty sure, gets to walk away because he has that last line about like, justice will decide if I'm innocent or guilty, which implies that he's going to turn himself over to the police. Ah, okay. So, you know, everybody gets their their just desserts. Um, (laughs) I think that like this movie is a lot of fun. It doesn't waste any time getting to the spooks. And it doesn't space the spooks too far apart. Like you have these little jump scare moments that are, you know, the dips in the roller coaster. um, And it's paced really well so that you're not like waiting for the next one. It's not like, um, oh gosh, the movie with the um, subliminal messages. Oh yeah. Where it was scary like once at the start and once in the middle and once at the end and the rest was kind of just waiting. Yeah. Um, like I kind of said in the plot synopsis, I was getting a little like miffed feels like too strong of a word, but just like a little like, why is it only Nora? Like why? But I mean, it's explained in the plot. Yes. But watching it, I was like, my brain was going like, look, I understand why it's the young woman who's getting scared here, but it's a little ridiculous that it's only her getting scared. Yeah, that was the thing that like clued my brain into, oh, we're doing a cat in the canary. They're intentionally trying to drive Nora nuts. It was just a question of like, why and why? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But the movie basically uses all the standard tricks of a movie like this. Um, Mm -hmm. It just does them all really well like all of the who's where at what time and can we trust this person like we've seen all these things before it's just this movie does them very well i also really appreciated knowing what was going on a bit before the finale like Mm -hmm. like having that scene between trent and annabelle where it's like haha they're falling for our plan um because then that let them do the fun double twist 
where you it's like fake out are ghosts real is that really Lorenz's skeleton and then he kills them and you're like what the fuck's going on and it's like haha you know I Xanatos gambited you <laughs> um because the reason why I say I really appreciate that um is you know not only because it gives us that final twist but because like I still have like traumatic memories of House of Mystery, a movie like this about a bunch of people stuck in a mansion overnight with everybody coming and going and a bunch of weird spooks and scares. But that movie just has like a bunch of nonsense happen for 90 minutes. And then the final five minutes is the detective being like, so these guys were from India and they were doing this thing to get this person to do this thing. I remember that gorilla escaped from the zoo. Yeah. And it's like, oh God, like it would have been nice to understand the story while it was happening, you know? Yeah. And it all makes sense. Like looking back as well it's like nothing kind of comes out of nowhere right there are a few holes but there's only one that i can't explain so like there's the question of like if the caretakers it's just like oh actually she's just blind and old why does she glide around but like because we know that trent and annabelle instructed the caretakers to lock everyone in earlier than expected so no one could leave particularly not nora it makes sense that maybe like they set some stuff up where it's like hey caretakers intentionally scare these people for us and like i don't know had a little roomba under old lady's dress that she could ride around (laughs) on um you know and at one point the male caretaker the husband like grabs nora and she and he says like they're like he's trying to kill you or something and she runs away and so i like i think they were kind of in on it Um, The only thing I can't really explain at all is how Trent managed to get a rope to climb up a wall and through a window and then around Nora's legs. Um, Easy. Uh, They lean into Nora being scared out of her fucking mind. And so she kind of puts things together. So it actually didn't look as like good as it did to us because we're seeing from Nora's point of view. Okay, that's an interesting no prize. I'll I'll give that to you. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something along the lines of um, when Ruth Bridgers walks under like the stain on the ceiling of mm. blood, um, stuff drips on her hand. And how are they managing to do that when you can see that there's nothing dripping from the spot? Well, there's that, and then it also happens in her room. And when she's wiping it away, it looks like nothing's there, and kind of like like a Lady Macbeth moment. Um, And I was going to use that to segue a little bit into um, how they keep the haunting a little ambiguous. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like, is it in our heads? Is it a hysteria moment or is it all a ruse from the Lorenz or is it actually haunted like Richard thinks? Well, there's certain things that like aren't explained, like the head in Nora's suitcase makes sense because they're specifically trying to scare Nora with it and of course every time Nora gets scared by something we get the standard scene of like no come look and then nothing's there so that she thinks she's going nuts um at one point Lance finds the head like hanging in Nora's closet like from a hook and he like grabs it and takes it downstairs to Pritchard and he's like the fuck is this and Pritchard's like the ghosts have her and so my belief is that like there's a bunch of stuff being done by Annabelle and Trent to spook everyone well to spook nora um and like maybe frederick set up some things 
to spook people for his own amusement. Like he seems very amused by the chandelier that nearly kills Nora at the start of the movie. But my firm belief is that the house within the story is actually haunted on top of everything else. It's just that like the ghosts in the house don't really care about these people. (laughs) Like they're not part of the like, you know, Pritchard legacy that's clearly cursed. Right. They're like, we'll let you use our place, but like, be off by morning, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because like, the person who's afraid of the ghosts is Pritchard, and it it seemed to me like they were implying like this is a thing where like successive generations of the family have been in this house and died in this house, which makes it really funny to me that they decided to use this like modern, like modernist architecture, nineteen twenty four Frank Lloyd Wright house. Um, they do do some things with the sets to try and like sort of make the architecture evocative of the outside but for the most part this would have made a lot more sense in like you know your standard the winchester old, house yeah exactly yeah um your standard old mansion kind of thing uh but yeah so i'm kind of inclined to believe that it really is haunted but that that's just like a background element to the other stuff going on absolutely um speaking a bit about like the filmmaking technique on display here i really liked how much camera movement there was throughout this movie yeah um it provided a good sense of like energy and momentum in the cramped quarters of you know this interior space we're stuck in and it meant that the movie didn't really feel as cheap as some of like the other movies of this ilk that we've seen where you know you're just going between like well and if we're in this room it's this shot and if it we're in that that room it's this shot right like i really liked that i do wish that maybe everything had been a little darker, like a little more shadows, because it it is all supposed to be lit by candlelight. Like the house doesn't have electricity. Um, but I sort of chuck that up to like, it's 1959 and making sure everything is adequately lit so you can see it is just kind of the style. And that like, we're meant to assume, because at some points the candles go out and it doesn't become black dark. It becomes like dimly lit with the candles out. So I think we're meant to understand that from the character's point of view, it's darker than it looks to us. Yeah. Kind of to your point about direction, the blocking is Mm. done really well because you always see like someone in the background potentially listening into the conversation we're seeing, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think Castle does a really good job with the directing here. I think this movie works as well as it does because although it's doing a subgenre that cheap-ass B-movies have been doing for 30 years, it's, you know doing it really well on like a higher level of skill and craft. Yeah. And having fun with it too. Exactly. This is, this movie's a lot of fun. So let's move on to ranking. For sure. So Sarah, my range is 20 movies big. Oh, mine's only four. Okay. Let's do my bigger range first and hopefully yours fits inside mine to make our, our lives easier. So I started by looking for macabre. Uh, the last Makes William sense. Castle movie. Yeah. And it's at number 24, which is way high up there. Right above it is Night of the Demon. Right below it is Murders in the Zoo. Like a lot of good company here. As I pointed out, there's no deeper sociological anything going on here. And it's also very clear that we're supposed to be having a lot of fun with this horror movie rather than like going home and having nightmares. So I was really conflicted about like, does this movie belong this high even if it's like really good and enjoyable and a fun time uh but ultimately i wanted to give the option that this is better than macabre because i kind of think it 
is better than macabre even if like that brings up all these issues of like right but does it deserve to be up here in such gentrified you know company so my ceiling is 23 you know not going above night of the demon but could go above macabre looking down from there you know you go through all of these really classic dark movies like ferryman maria and invasion of the body snatchers and lake of the dead and you know fiend without a face is here cabin of caligari nosferatu so i kept making my way down trying to find a movie where it was like no this is definitely you know better and i hit the blob at number 43 and the blob is a lot of fun too it's it's kind of like a fun take your date out to it movie and so far as horror movies go i like house on haunted hill better than the blob the blob's a lot of fun and it's it's probably more genuinely scary in some spots but my own like taste in what i like in a horror movie kind of leads me to this so my range is 23 to 43 well we are in luck because my range falls within yours excellent i also went to macabre which as you said is at number 24 i felt this was better than macabre so my floor is 24 Okay. And then as I looked up, the thing that kept me from going too high is the fact that, yeah, House on Haunted Hill has no meat to it. It's mm-hmm. a fun roller coaster, but you're not meant to like ponder yeah. social issues. Or... Right. It's, it's cotton candy. Yeah. Which is fine. Totally great. Mm-hmm. So I felt that it would not be better than I Married a Monster from Outer Space at 21, which... um has more uh, of a sinister feel to it and then has that neat metatextual element to it with who they cast. Yeah, you can write thesis papers on I Married a Monster from Outer Space. It would be very hard to do one on House on Haunted Hill. So my range was 21 to 24. Okay. Do we just want to slot this in at the new number 24 then because my ceiling was 23? Well, how do you feel about this compared to Night of the Demon? I think that like Night of the Demon has a wider scope, but the fact that House and Haunted Hill is so focused, like a bottle episode, it mm. really gives it some strength. Yeah, but ultimately Night of the Demon is still like finding a way to talk about something, mm-hmm. right? With like superstition versus pragmatism or whatever. Um and I really liked that about Night of the Demon. Um, so I think like it's trying to do something a little more. So I'm kind of, yeah, cool with just slotting this above Macabre. Cool. Let's do that. All right. So entering the list at the new number 24 is House on Haunted Hill from 1959, directed by William Castle. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to submit an appeal for this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can help support the show by subscribing using our RSS feed, leaving us a rating or a review, if that's possible, on the podcasting app of your choice, or uh, just telling some friends about the show. Uh, Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. If you would like to support us financially, you can do that too at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. 
Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and all patrons get to vote in our monthly polls to determine our horror-adjacent bonus episode. By the time that this episode comes out, we will have decided, uh, and as of of recording it's looking like it's probably going to be beetlejuice Mm. (laughs) so that will be interesting um but thank you everyone for voting very cool yeah so if you want to get in on that action head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so what are we watching next week ben next week sarah we are back to japan with another nobuo nakagawa horror movie okay this time it's ana kyuketsuki or The Lady Vampire. Ooh. So see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.